I remember the day that I met my father face to face. Um, most of you know my father chose to leave our family when I was quite young. Uh, he moved out of our home and left the state the summer after I finished kindergarten. Uh, I was five when he stepped out of my life pretty much for good. Uh, he chose not to tell anyone where he was going and he never contacted us. Uh, so I grew up without knowing my father uh, at all. My mother found him years later, he and the uh, woman that he had left our family for and left town with, had settled in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, my parents' legal divorce was settled when I was in eighth grade. Now, as part of that settlement, those of us who were, I'm the youngest of five, and those of us who were still uh, minors and at home uh, were required to have phone contact with him as part of uh, the divorce settlement. So the... Uh, Three of us who were still minors at that point walked next door to the gas station that was next door to the apartment that we had moved into. And really, we had just recently, we had just moved into it. Uh, I think this was the first year we were in that apartment. Uh, we lost the house that my parents had before uh, he left because of different legal things and not getting signed over and all that. And so we had to move uh, a number of years later. And uh, so the three of us walked over to this gas station, and I called a man that I never knew. It was awkward. It was awkward on both ends of the phone. I mean, not just for my sister and my brother and myself, but it was awkward for him, too. I really didn't want to talk to him. We, we didn't know each other. In my mind, I was calling a stranger. I had a closer relationship with the guy at the gas station than I did with my father. And yet, here we had to call him. I think the arrangement only lasted two, maybe three phone calls until my father decided that it was no longer worth it. And, I mean, I can understand that because we didn't know what even to say to him. And it was about four years later that the doorbell rang in our apartment and I walked out to the landing and I yelled down three flights of stairs, uh, who is it? That was just the way we answered the door. I don't remember if he just said, it's dad or it's your dad or, or, or what. What I do remember is whatever his reply was, dad was in it, to which I then ran back into the apartment and back to the furthest room from that front door that I could get to. Now, my mother, who was a wise woman, uh, made me not hide in the bedroom back there, but made me come out uh, into the living room. And what I remember is when my father stepped into the apartment, he had a tentative, uh, somewhat hesitant uh, pause as if he wasn't sure if he was welcome or not, wasn't sure what to expect. That was the first time I had seen my father face to face since I was five years old. What I remember in that moment is I thought his response was how I would have responded. That the way he moved even was the way I would have moved. 
And in that moment, I felt like I knew exactly how he felt standing there in that doorway. Now, I'm sure my values were still polar opposites of him and of his values. Uh, We were quite different. Yet here was this man who I was sure that I did not want to be like, and yet I saw myself in him. Not the way he looked, uh, but in his mannerisms, in his attitude. I was thinking about that as I was reading the passage that we're going to look at today. Because in the passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to see two groups of people who we think are quite different from each other. And yet they're more similar than they would have liked to admit. But we will also see, I think, some similarities in ourselves that are in these guys. And we may have more in common with them than we would like. And what I'm hoping, you know, both of these groups that we're looking at, you see the title, Misguided Misunderstandings. Both of these groups had misguided misunderstandings about Jesus. As we look at them and as we look at some of their misunderstandings, what I'm hoping is, you know, that we will learn how we might better engage people with the truth about who Jesus is. Let's pray and we're going to turn to our passage. Father, I thank you for the way you open our eyes. Sometimes we don't like it. Sometimes we're very uncomfortable. And sometimes we see ourselves in people who we don't want to see ourselves in. But you in your grace and in your wisdom... Uh, You don't work by accident. You don't work by chance. You are very deliberate. You are very deliberate in your love and in teaching us in and through that love, not only to understand you better, but to love you better and to love those around us in the way we should. So as we look into your word, I pray that you would teach us, oh, Father, Teach us, transform us. Don't leave us where we are. That's a frightening prayer. But Father, it's one we need. Use your word. Use your word in transforming ways, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 17, if you'd turn there with me. It's on page 964 in the Pew Bible. And again... um, I'm using Holman Christian Standard, which is what the Pew Bible is. So if uh, you want to, if it confuses you a little bit, um, you know, you want to look at the Holman Christian Standard. Now, keep the Bible open because we're going to expand from the original passage that we read. Uh, As I was working on laying out these sermons for this series, God drew my attention to these verses And it seemed that God was pointing out some differences and some similarities between the Pharisees and Jesus' disciples. Two groups which we would think of as two very different groups with polar opposite views in many ways. And what we usually think of with them being on opposite ends of the spectrum in regards to Jesus and spiritual matters, but the similarities between these groups is a little bit unnerving for us because sometimes uh, we see it in ourselves or maybe in others. 
And it's caused me to wonder if, you know, we might maybe have some misguided misunderstandings that we operate from, and we don't want that. So again, we're going to expand from this, but I'm going to start in verse 20. We're going to read 20 through 25, and then keep your Bible handy as we uh, expand out from that a little bit. Verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God will come, he answered them. He, being Jesus, answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, look here or there, for you see the kingdom of God is among you. Then he told the disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. They will say to you, look there or look here. Don't follow or run after them. For as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, in these verses, the first group that we see in this section of verses here are the Pharisees as they come to ask Jesus when the kingdom of God was coming. Now, this would be in line with their responsibilities as Pharisees. Their responsibility as Pharisees would be to examine those who come, who have come along and claim or others feel may be the Messiah or even really any type of religious leader or person. And it was their responsibility to in, investigate and I was going to use the word interrogate. I guess that's not, that's, that, that's correct, you know, to interrogate them and to see what was, what was happening. Uh, you know, and, uh, Jesus realized when these guys come, what they're, they're looking for and they're asking about was when the Messiah was going to come and set up God's kingdom. Well, that's what they wanted to know. When is the Messiah going to come? And set up God's kingdom. They are under Roman rule and they didn't want that. They did not want to be under Roman rule. You know, what they wanted, you know, what they thought would be a return of the Israelite kingdom and, and, and that it would be, you know, at this time and that it would be ruled by the Messiah. This is what the, the Pharisees had expected. Now this was the same thing that the second group here, the disciples, what they were expecting. The difference was the disciples at this point, they were thinking Jesus was that Messiah, but that he was going to set up this this rule that was going to overthrow and was going to replace the Roman rule. Jesus' answer of the kingdom not being observable gave them information they needed, but they didn't grasp because they were looking for observable signs that they could check off to know that the kingdom of God was had actually come. That would be a very handy thing for us. In fact, you know, the, the, the kingdom of God was not, it is not a matter of meeting a checklist of requirements and expectations. That is sometimes how we approach a relationship with God. We sometimes try to approach a relationship with God and to know that we're there. We want this checklist. We want these requirements. Tell me what it is. Give me a list so I can go down the list and I can see that I'm there. That would be a religion. That is how we operate when we operate in religion. Now, you have both the Pharisees and the disciples here, and they were looking for those signs that they thought needed to happen, they thought needed to be in place. The Pharisees expected the kingdom to be restored you know, in or by the kingdom of Israel, replacing the kingdom of Rome. That's all they were doing. They were thinking that these kingdoms, that the kingdom of Israel was going to replace the kingdom of Rome. The disciples, they were looking for the Messiah to be head of this kingdom, replacing Roman rulers. 
You see, they were, they were basically just had a little different nuance on the, on the same thing that they were looking for. They were both misguided and had misunderstandings about the kingdom of God. Today, people still have a checklist, a checklist of what makes someone a, a Christian. That is a religion. What we need is a relationship. We need a relationship with God, not a religion. A relationship is where we live together. It's where we are living life, not just a segment of life, but where we are doing life together. This is what, this is, this is what God calls us to. This is what God wants for us. This is what God wants with us. Now, unfortunately for many, it doesn't get much further than simply thinking if they attend church and if they attend church occasionally, you know, maybe if they believe in God and, 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 you know, then they will be okay. For some, they figure, well, you know, they're not a heathen. They're not a Jew. They're not a Muslim. They must be a Christian. You know, I'm not any of these other things, so I must be a Christian. You know, what we need to realize when we engage people is that they may think they're a Christian without any idea of what a Christian really is. I had a conversation with someone, not this last week, just it was the week before. And as we were entering into this conversation, I really kind of thought beforehand, because it's somebody I, I know, it's, it wasn't a stranger, it's somebody I know, and as I was talking with them, and we were, you know, we were using, we were talking about some things that had gone on in, in their life, and, and just trying to reconcile some of what was happening with, you know, the thought of, well, you know, how could a Christian be doing something like this, you know, and we were talking and we were, we were discussing that, and I knew we had very different ideas of what a of what a Christian is, you know. And we're not telling them about a religion. We're not telling them about Christianity. We are telling them about a relationship, a relationship with a living God. As I was talking with this person, and we were talking back and forth, and it was an extended conversation. Uh, and as we were talking, and I, I kept using that word relationship, you know, about having a relationship with Jesus. And after, uh, I mean, it, you know, it was, it, it was, uh, you know, a, a, like I said, a long conversation, not because it, it was because we were together for a long period of time, which is why it was a longer conversation. But as we were having that conversation, then he stops and he looks at me and he says, you keep using this word relationship. And I said, yeah. And then I, so I, then I was able to explain to him about a relationship with Christ. I wasn't talking about a religion. You know, that, that I wasn't talking about a religion. I was talking about a relationship. I wasn't talking about what the, what the church or a church says that this, you know, that, that this or that should happen or, or what even society says this or that. I was talking about a relationship. What does that relationship look like? As we live, as we live our, our day, day in and day out with God. Now Jesus points out in verse 21 that the kingdom of God is here now because God himself is here now. They didn't get it. He was talking about himself that they, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't connecting with that. Uh, you know, but, but people, people think about needing God later. They don't think of the here and now. You know, it's later. It's, you know, when I get older, when I get near the end of life, which, as we all know and say glibly, we never know when that will come. We need to realize the seriousness of that reality. 
You know, but, but the people think that perhaps they, you know, perhaps before they die, they're going to figure out, uh, you know, that they'll, they'll look for God or begin to take God a little bit more seriously. But in the meantime, it's the Christian, what did, what, what did Amish call that? Ramshnugger? Their wild time, whatever it is. What is it? Hey, you can tell me. I'll never be able to repeat it. You know, yeah, that's it. You know. Rummer Sprunger, whatever it is, you know, and, and, you know, that's the Christian view of this, uh, you know, that, well, you know, we can horse around, do what we want, and God will forgive me later, and later I'll come to Him, and later I'll get this stuff straightened out, you know, and, and, and stuff, and, and you know, that that's not, you know, that that's not what what the whole thing is about. That it, what we need to do, you know, what we need to realize is when we're talking to people, we're not talking about future possibilities; we are talking about a present reality. It's a present reality. My relationship with Christ is a present reality. Christianity isn't just for future living. It isn't just for when we die. It isn't just for when we leave this earth, you know, that, you know, that, that we're going to go and that we're going to know where we're going. It is for living here and now. Both the Pharisees and the disciples were misguided and they misunderstood the reality of the kingdom of God. They were looking for their ideas of a future kingdom. That it's going to come, this future kingdom. And they were looking for those ideas, you know, of what was coming and they were missing the present realities. They were overlooking the present opportunity to be connected with God. You see, we have this present opportunity to be connected with God right now. It's not something that we have to wait for later that, you know, that when, when we check out of this earth, you know, that then, then we have this, you know, then we're going to go be with God. No, we can live with Him right now. Jesus wanted them to see the present reality of Him in their midst. Isn't that what we really need? To see that present reality of God in our midst. Isn't that what people we talk to need to understand? The present reality of God in our midst. He is here and he, you know, he, he, he's, he's here with us now. That's what we need to help people see. We need to help them see, you know, that God is for the here and now. Jesus wanted them to see the, pre- the present reality of him in their midst. We need to see the present, present reality of God in our midst for the here and now. For our present reality to help us with our living right now. To help us enjoy living with him right now. Not, some, not, not just something later. But for my living now. Look at verse 25. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This did not fit the expectation of either group. Neither the Pharisees nor the disciples saw that he was going to be suffering many things. They didn't see any suffering. They didn't see suffering and rejection as as part of the Messiah bringing in in the kingdom of God. That wasn't that wasn't on their radar screen. That wasn't how it was supposed to work out in their mind. There was no suffering. There was no rejection. The present Messiah was going to be welcomed. They they saw the the kingdom you know the kingdom of God and the kingdom rule and the kingdom ruler here on earth that that would be gladly welcomed particularly by the Jewish people, that it would be gladly welcomed because they were going to be set free from Rome, you see. They were going to be set free from the oppression and they were gladly welcomed that. Now, in the word must there, you know, in verse 25, but first he must suffer many things. That indicates this was part of God's sovereign plan. 
I don't care what your theology is, you're not going to mess with God's sovereign plan. I think scripture scripture is pretty clear to me. There's there's to, to word word it as God's sovereign will and God's permissive will. For example, um, it was God's sovereign will that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. It was God's sovereign will that a virgin would bring forth a child. And his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. God's sovereign will. I think there's God's permissive will where that's where, where sin enters the picture. You're allowed to do stupid things. You're allowed to do Sinful things. It's not what God wants. I've had people tell me, well, you know, God must want that because otherwise he'd stop me from doing it. Uh, we see, we're, we're, again, we're putting our ideas of, of, of who God is and how God should act. We're, we're bringing our ideas to God instead of realizing and accepting who God was. They were having a hard time here accepting and understanding who God was. You know, it didn't fit their idea of how things should go. We need to understand, you know, that God's plan is sometimes quite different from our understanding. His plan is quite often quite different from our understanding. I'm so glad because Man, there were some things I really didn't get before, and I'm glad God didn't didn't change it for me. But what we also need to understand is, you know, God's plan is always so much better than our own understanding. God's plan is better than our understanding. Now, know this. Better does not mean without pain. Better does not mean without suffering. Look at verse 25. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Better doesn't mean without pain and without suffering. What it means is the pain and the suffering is not without purpose. Do you get that? Do you get that? It is not without purpose. God is not trying to make you miserable. God is not trying to make you squeal. He is not trying to make you suffer. He is not trying to make you, make you hurt and pain. God is trying to make you Better. His purpose is not to make us miserable, not to drive us away, but to help us to find him and to help us be able to live in his kingdom now here on earth in this life. Let me remind you what it means to live in his kingdom. When you live in a kingdom, you live under the rule of the king. 
You live under the authority of the king. You recognize that sovereign as your ruler, as your king. When you live in the kingdom of God now, you are recognizing God as your ruler, as your sovereign, as your king. As the one who loves you and cares for you, as the one who guides you, as the one who sets the rules and the regulations and, and the, the ones that, that then we follow and we live by. Let's pull this in the context of these verses to help us with our understanding. Here's where we're going to expand a little bit. Back up to verse 11. The verse is just preceding what we read. Verse 11, it says, While traveling to Jerusalem, he, again, that being Jesus, passed between Samaria and Galilee. Samaria, not the place they wanted to go. Verse 12, As he entered the village, a village, ten men with serious skin diseases met him, They stood at a distance and raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, go and show yourself to the priests. And while they were going, they were healed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell down at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. When I was reading these verses, verses 12 and 13 caught my attention. Where it says, you know, that they stood at a distance. It says here, you know, that these these men with skin diseases, they approached him, yet they stayed at a distance and expressed themselves to Jesus. We had a fellow in our church in Riverdale, and um, he he came to a relationship with Christ, but his wife did not. He was the, the first one in his immediate family that came into a relationship with Christ. He invited he invited me and uh, his cousin. His cousin came to our church as well, and his cousin had had helped him come to a relationship with Christ. So he invited me and his cousin uh, to come over and to talk with his wife. Uh, his sister-in-law, and his mother-in-law, who was dying of cancer at that time. Now, his cousin and I, and I remember, we pulled up behind the apartment, uh, the apartment building, and we prayed together in the car before we went in. We went in, and we went in through the back door, which is where the kitchen was, and we sat down around the kitchen table in their apartment. There was this man's cousin, this man, uh, his wife, his sister-in-law, um, and I think his brother, her, her brother-in-law might have been there too. But the mother-in-law never came into the kitchen. She stayed around the corner in the living room. And I never saw her at all, you know, when we first got there. And what she did was she would shout her objections and anger, uh, you know, and interject that as the rest of us talked together in the kitchen. She could hear what we were saying, and she made sure that I heard what she had to say. In fact, you know, really, all of them talked, they yelled, they complained about God. They were sharing their misunderstandings, and, you know, for two hours straight, without ever allowing me to get a word in edgewise. They just were unloading. And I remember John was the, the cousin 
And he was a big dude. He was, you know, Andrew reminds me of him. He was a big dude with a deep voice. Like I, I've told you about this guy before. It sounded like his voice rumbled up from the depths of the earth somewhere and rolled through his body as he talked. And he couldn't believe I wasn't saying anything. And I thought he was going to get whiplash looking at me and looking at them and looking at me and looking at them. And she'd say something and his, his head's fine. And, you know, we just, I just sat there. What, what could I say? After two hours, they came up for air and allowed me to begin to talk with them. And what I noticed is the comments from the living room were getting softer and it sounded like his mother-in-law was moving closer to the kitchen. And it wasn't too long, you know, after another 30 minutes or so, his mother-in-law actually worked her way around the corner. I remember she first started by sitting on the arm of the couch in the doorway. And then she eventually came and joined us at the kitchen table and we talked. That night, they just listened and talked with me about Jesus. And I, I tried to explain to them who it was, you know, who he was. And, but I will tell you, before that woman died, she did come into a relationship with Christ. And what a great, what great conversations we had then. It was such a neat thing. I didn't argue religion with them. I simply engaged them in a conversation about the reality of life with Jesus here and now. And yeah, she was in a tough spot. But that didn't change the reality of a life with Jesus here and now. You have heard this from me so many times before that you should have already filled in the next blank on your outline. We are not out to win arguments. We simply need to tell people about a relationship with Jesus. We are not out to win arguments. We simply want to tell people what it means to know Him. What it means to live like we know Him. That our daily living reflects the fact that we know Him. That our time on earth is short and eternity is real. If God has worked in your life, then tell other people about it. If he's worked in your life, then tell people what he's done in your life. Notice, Jesus heals these ten men, and what does he do? Sends them to the priest. He sends them to the priest, which is where they needed to go to be declared officially clean. They were actually healed, it says, as they went. As they did what Jesus told them to do. As they began to obey. That's when they were healed. Ten healed men showing up to talk to these priests. Ten healed guys coming together to to talk to these priests. To go into the temple. To tell them what they had done. Ten healed men who they all knew were unclean before. Ten healed men coming in and giving that witness. Do you think it would make an impact? All they could tell them was what Jesus had told them. What a witness. What a witness to these Jewish officials. On the heels of that, the Pharisees come and ask Jesus about the coming kingdom of God. When is it, when is the kingdom of God coming? On the heels of this, uh, of this healing. 
Now drop down to verse 26. We read 20 through 25. Drop down to verse 26. The teaching, this is the teaching that Jesus gives following his engaging the Pharisees and the disciples. Verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, and the other left. Two will be in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord? They asked him. He said to them, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, Jesus mentions here the events of Noah and the world being destroyed by the flood. And he mentions about Lot and the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed. Now, the people of Noah's day, they ignored God and they ignored the witness of Noah. Notice what it says. They were caught up in the things of this life. They were misunderstanding real life. Misunderstanding real life. The people of Sodom ignored the witness of Lot. They simply went on with life as usual. And usual was bad. Usual wasn't a good thing. They were misguided on what was good. They had real twisted ideas of what was good. Both instances, destruction came. And it came as a surprise to the people who ignored God. It even came as a surprise to the people who... Knew God. Lot was probably a little more surprised than Noah. He'd been working on the ark for a while, but you know, then it finally did start to rain. You know, both instances came as a surprise. The destruction came as a surprise to those who were ignoring God. It says, when the day comes, a man on his rooftop should not go down into the house. The man in his field should not turn back. It says, two will be in bed. One will be taken. One will be taken in judgment. This is not about the rapture. What did he say? Remember who? Remember Lot's wife. One will be taken in and one will be taken in judgment. One left. Two will be grinding grain. One will be taken in judgment and one left. The healing of the lepers were a witness to the Jewish leaders that Jesus brought the kingdom. Yet they asked, how can we know when the kingdom is coming? Jesus emphasizes the reality that judgment is coming. We not only need to help people see that time is short, we need to realize. We need to realize that time is short and we need to tell people about Jesus while we still can. We need to help them come closer to Jesus. We need to help them understand more of who he is. God was working. They were all focused here on how they thought God should work, and they were missing the work that he was doing right there in front of them, right in front of them. Both groups missed. They overlooked. They were over. 
overlooking what God had done. They focused on other things. If God has worked in your life, you can tell people what God is doing in your life. And you can help them to see that God is alive and God is here and God is working now. Does that mean everything works out well for us? No. One of the dumbest things people have said is that God won't give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will. Don't be so foolish. Of course he will. Read the whole verse. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation will provide a way of escape so that you might be able to bear up under it. If I'm bearing up under something that I do not have the strength, that I could not resist, what I'm doing is I am learning what Paul said. God's strength is found in my weakness. That he is the one who gives me the strength to face those things I could never face on my own. That is God showing, proving to me that he is real, that he cares, and that he will do exactly what he said, that he will get me through those times. If God isn't going to, if God, if God's not going to give you more than you can bear, let me ask you this. Why do you need God then? If you could do it on your own, why do you need God? You see, the point of scripture and the point of reality of that relationship with Christ is we can't do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. And He is the one who gets us through. He is the one who, who gets us there. We need to realize. God doesn't work the way we think he should. We need to see and we need to help people see what God is doing right now. To better engage people, change your perspective on how and when God will work. He is working now. He is not working your plan. You got that. He is not working your plan He is working his plan, not yours. Change your perspective. See God at work and see him at work right now. Let him work in you and let him work through you to help others come closer to Jesus. Get past your own misguided misunderstandings about how God will work, when God will work, what God should do. Uh, You know, time is short. Engage people. Engage them. Tell them about Jesus. And watch God do amazing things. Let's pray.